morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 86 of the Beta Black Podcast. I'm Amon Warman. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This week, it's a Hannah interview special, because not only does she speak to director Sally El Hassani about the remarkable true story behind her drama, The Swimmers, she also speaks to Namor himself, Tenochtitlan Meha, about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And we... As a team, we'll meet My Father's Dragon, thanks to Cartoon Saloon's latest, and then go all out on that independent movie that probably won't make much money. You know it as Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, the latest Marvel blockbuster, the 30th film in the MCU, would you believe? Um, and so, yeah, we'll be doing that in our normal review, and we'll be going into our hot takes with it and going into full spoilers with that movie. Uh, but before then... Let's check in with the team. I'm going to go first here because my week, it it didn't start off very well. And this is why. For, I think, now the 10th year running, I have been passed over for people's sexiest man alive. It's ridiculous. It's getting ridiculous. I I, I demand a recount. I don't know what's going on, but I'm right here. I mean, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. Chris Evans? Really? I, I, don't, I don't know about that. It's because he paid them. What's he paying them? You know what? It is all about that, by the way. It is all about really? it. You know what's really great? There's this... Ep- I don't know if you've ever watched the TV series that, that was cancelled way too early, but it's called The Bitch in Apartment 23, which was Christian Ritter in it, and it had James Vanderbeek playing himself. Yes. And there's an epico- episode de- uh, dedicated to Christian Ritter's character trying to sort her best mate, Jazz, James Vanderbeek, making him people's sexiest man alive. And she like infiltrates the office and all that type of thing. And it's so perfect. It's such a good series. And James Vanderbeek, it's like the best role he's ever played. Because it's one of those, like, you know, when someone plays himself, it's like a bit like, you know, the um, uh, unbearable weight of massive talent, Nicolas Cage. It's like that yeah. heightened version. Also, he's like such a bit of a dick and a, <laughs> like a himbo guy. It's great. So... Um, I think they should have made James Vanderbeek sexiest man alive just because of that for absolute jokes. Um, but I didn't know. Someone said something. I saw two things I thought was really funny, and I can't remember who said it. But I saw them on Twitter, and um, someone once someone pointed out, "Oh, these are the sexiest men alive according to men." <laughs> it's like, and I don't know. She's like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like that's so right. It's like these are the sexiest men, like The Rock. I feel like men think he's sexy more than like yeah, women this think is he's you. sexy. Or no, like Blake Blake saying, Nelson. You 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 and Dwayne Johnson are not friends. <laughs> I no, that's not fair. I actually support everything that Dwayne does. I love him, as I wrote in my book. Okay. I actually really support him on everything. I just think he had a blind spot with with Black Adam. So I will defend okay. right. Dwayne. But like you know, they had like Blake Nelson, like you know the guy who's like the country singer. Things like that. And then I saw another tweet that said <laughs> they always um, award sexiest men alive to people when they're not their sexiest. Like, they always pick the wrong year. <laughs> and I think that's also a good point. It's like Chris Evans should have been sexiest man alive, like, not now. Should have been, like, you know, 10 years ago, right? Yeah. I mean... He doesn't really have anything coming out. This is what I always find weird about the sexiest man alive. It's like it's not even tied to... What has Chris Evans done this year to be so sexy? He's just kind light of... Lightyear! <laughs> exactly! Are we rewarding him for Lightyear? We didn't even see his face. I don't understand. <laughs> was it for the way that when he was on the red carpet, he was like, Ma! 
Do you see that? <laughs> Max! I don't know. Maybe in... maybe that's the point. It's like <laughs> they've got nothing else going on, so it's like, oh, let's do this then. Let's get this out of the way. Let's get it done. <laughs> well, I mean, he was in the Grey Man. Oh yeah, he I was. Think, you know, they 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 did that bit um, on Colbert with Dwayne Johnson bequeathing Chris Evans the the, the best the sexiest man alive sash um, on, on on set of their upcoming film. Um, so there's there's that too. They're in the movie um, but together. I probably, yeah, yeah, they're making the film together. Um, but I probably would have given the award to Chris Evans in 2018 in his Infinity War year because when he had yeah. that beard and we capped, I mean, you know, I'm gonna say he was he was he, he was not unattractive in that movie. Has that Ryan Gosling been nominated for Sexiest Man Alive? I'm sure he's been nominated, but I don't think he's won. No, but won it. That's, I would have said Ryan Gosling's yeah. overdue. Pedro Pascal, overdue. I'm sure Cruz would agree with that. I think they, <laughs> but they, <laughs> they never really pick people who are particularly like funny or weird, though. <laughs> so I think both of those men are out of the running. They're too yeah. weird in a good way, but, you know. He's our sex. He is Fade to Black's official Sexiest Man Alive 2022. Again, right. I'm right here. You're gonna, you're gonna. I'm right here, and you're just gonna give it to another dude. Come on! I said what I said. This is this is this is, <laughs> this is very hurtful. Um, I think we should move on. Um, but before we do, I wanted to uh, say a few words about Kevin Conroy, uh, who is a longtime sort of voice actor of Batman, who passed away uh, earlier this week, um, which hit me hard because I, you know, I've made no secret about the fact that I think his Batman is fantastic the best batman uh ever as far as i'm concerned he's the batman that i grew up with with the animated series and with many other uh animated series and movies besides and he just understood that character even before he really knew who the character was and what he was about he understood him the thing which a lot of batman actors have done since then in terms of distinguishing between the bruce wayne and the batman of it all Kevin Conroy was the first person to do that in the animated series. Um, and there's so many iconic Batman moments I think of uh, when I think of the character and when I think of him, um, which I'll definitely be sort of re-watching a few of them this weekend. I would call, recording this on a Saturday, the news obviously broke on Friday. Um, so yeah, and any time I read a Batman comic, I always, always hear the words in his voice. That is never going to change for as long as I live. Um, best Batman there ever was the standard by which all other Batman will be measured for me. Uh, mm. So yeah, rest, rest in peace to Kevin Conroy. 66, cancer's a bitch. Um, well, speaking of legends, who, but still around, I, I had like a career highlight this week. I got flown to Berlin. You did, this is true. To interview Spike Lee, which was like crazy. Like what? It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was so interesting because... Before, like in preparation for us, we've been watching like a lot of his interviews, like rewatching a lot of his films. Because like, oh god, I don't want to like be caught off guard if I don't remember like this thing from Jungle Fever, blah blah. Anyway, but like, it's so interesting. He's such a stream of consciousness the way he like speaks. Um, like the way like sometimes I'd ask a question, he'd give me an answer. It wouldn't be the answer to the question I just asked, but he'd give an answer, and you're like, okay, cool. He's like kind of um, the right. I don't think. Yeah, it was so much. It was so much fun. He's really funny. I've never had so many people come up to me after saying, great job, you great job. Because when we do Q&As, normally when it's like 
just a normal thing or like around critics or something. I feel like people are more reluctant to say, well done for this one. I felt, I was like, am I a talent? <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, you are. that was really fun. You are a talent. Did oh, he do his, his British accent, you know, when he's like, not right, my cup of tea? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're about to go from Hannah talking to one director to Hannah talking to another director because she spoke to Sally El Hosseini about the swimmers before we get to that wonderful interview that I've definitely listened to. <laughs> Here's the trailer for the swimmers. One day, I want to swim in the Olympics. The conflict in Syria has escalated out of control. Need to go. He says he can get us on a boat to Greece. There's no more room in the boat. I'm in the deep end. Watch as I dive in. I'll never hear the Is that is that the words to it? I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> Close enough. Yeah. It was like Lady Gaga just stepped in momentarily. What is it? There you go. Sha-sha-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la
you know, because originally Jack Thorne wrote the script and she was brought in and she doesn't really write stuff, doesn't really work on scripts that she doesn't write herself. But, you know, it's really interesting how they made, tailored it and imbued it with so much like Irish specificity. Uh, so uh, The Swimmers is out in cinemas now. It'll be on Netflix in two weeks. And so in the meantime, please enjoy my interview with Sally Elasini. So Sally, I mean, I feel like I've been on a journey with this, yeah. with you, which has been amazing, but obviously yours started a lot earlier. So um, I'm really interested first to know, though, because this is your sophomore feature, I'd love to understand a bit more about like why it takes so long. Just because obviously I've loved you since uh, My Brother the Devil. So like how long it takes and just what it's like being a filmmaker in the industry trying to make your second feature? Yeah, I mean, My Brother the Devil took eight years to make, and um, when I finished it, I thought, oh, great, now I'll be able to be easy, right? <laughs> I've done one, but it wasn't, um, and that's probably just because I'm quite choosy, and I was wanting to write stuff myself and generate stuff myself, um, and I have this annoying thing where I never want to make a film that I feel I've seen before, so scripts were coming my way, but I was being pretty selective, correctly so, because when you choose a project, you live with it for so long. Mm. You know, you have to really feel excited by it. And I like challenging things, so I like things I'm a little bit scared of or um, that are a mashup of things or that are cross-genre or maybe not the easiest sells. Yeah. So um, in that time, I was writing stuff that I was trying to get made and get off the ground. Um, I also had a kid, and it, uh, uh, what else? I did Danny Boyle and Jesse Armstrong's mm. TV series Babylon, so I directed some telly as well, which was an uh, interesting experience. <laughs> it was the first time directing something I hadn't written, and I realised how much I loved it. Right, and obviously, because, yeah, because I remember we spoke about this before, and, like, you, you often avoid stuff that you don't get to write yourself, but obviously this one had already had Jack Thorne, yeah, well, I thought that would be the case, but no, I love it. It's like you get the you, you get to do the fun bit, <laughs> <laughs> and someone else has put in the years of slog. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me a bit about that, because again, you know, this is a very specific story, um, very culturally specific, and obviously your background mm. really benefited the storytelling. So, ha tell me about a bit more of the kind of things that I suppose the terms of which you wanted to sign on that you kind of needed to ensure that you could have your own stamp on it, as well as it obviously, you know, leading off what Jack had put in the script as well and creating this whole world. Yeah, well, initially the script was very different um, and I knew that there were things I really wanted to bring to it um, and Jack was very open to that from the get-go. So when I started um, having lots of opinions and having a lot to say, um, he was like just write it then and so we got into the situation where I was just writing and then he was very open to that and so I would just write drafts and give them to Jack and then he would look at what I'd written and then he would tweak and he would change and then we'd discuss things and then we would present it to the team from both of us kind of thing um, so he, he there was a lot of freedom in what we in, in the way we were working together and obviously your background uh, is Egyptian, but this mm. is a Syrian story. And I know you had a cult cultural consultant on it. So you could tell me a little bit about how you, you work to ensure that there are the nuances, that people mm. beyond Western audiences, people who are from the Arab world, yeah. can watch this and not think, oh, this is not doing the work. Yeah. I mean, I'm so sick of seeing 
um, things made where you have one Arab character speaking with a Moroccan accent, the next one speaking with an Egyptian accent, and the next one speaking with a Saudi accent or something, and they're all meant to be siblings or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that's one of my bugbears. Um, so it was very important to me from the get-go that we hire native Arabic speakers as actors who could act in Arabic as well as they could act in English, which sometimes isn't the case in something bilingual. There seems to be a skew towards the English acting and people phonetically doing the Arabic. Yeah. Um, so that was super important to me from the start, that they were native Arabic speakers and actors. Um, and uh, as was having the film partly in Arabic, that was... Um, a fight that I had in the beginning because the script was all in English initially mm. and I just felt you couldn't tell the story and be in Syria and have people speak English and have it at all credible yeah. um, and luckily Sara and Yusra are bilingual so I was able to use their bilingualism to open up the film in a way so that when they're on the journey with people who don't speak Arabic they speak English and that was very true to Yusra and Sara themselves because when they arrived in Berlin you know they told when I met them they told me they often spoke English sometimes with each other it's certainly about more painful topics because sometimes speaking in Arabic felt even more painful mm. because they were far away from home and family. Um, and th I found the linguistic aspect of when we speak Arabic and English very intuitive. And that was when I reached out to Hassan Akkad um, on Twitter and I DM'd him and obviously I had seen Exodus, um, which, you know, he had... He had um, filmed on his mobile phone um, his own journey and his own crossing on a dinghy, and it was in the, the, the BBC series Exodus. And I said to him, look, I'm doing this film, and I really need someone who knows how to speak like Damascene teenagers in 2015, because I don't want Google Translate to do the translation of the Arabic. I want it to be street Syrian. Mm. And he was like, okay, yeah, yeah I, I'll do that. So he first came on board to translate the Arabic portions in a really authentic way. So there's words in there that only Syrian teenagers would know are from Syria, yeah. uh, and, and that are specific to Damascus even, not even other cities in Syria. I think that's the misconception. I've just like, because <laughs> you know, I told you I'm Tunisian, and like yeah. learning, trying to learn Tunsi, it's like a mixture of like Arabic, French, Italian words, and like how they would say, rather than say shukran, it's like aishik as a thank you. So it's yeah. it, having those little details, I bet it means so much as well to viewers who might see themselves represented on screen. Absolutely. And I ended up going, obviously, as you do, with the best actors, but I had an Egyptian actor, a Palestinian actor, Lebanese actresses, so they all had to learn Syrian. So um, I was quite strict on that. And they all, Hassan actually was a language teacher back in Damascus. So I employed him as well to, to teach them their Syrian and make sure their Syrian was completely on point. Because yeah. um, I just didn't want it to be Palestinian, Lebanese, yeah, Egyptian. Yeah, exactly. One thing that really struck me when I watched the film, which, again, and that, this obviously isn't just a refugee story, this is, you know, and to call them simply refugees is quite reductive. But I love the fact that the start of it opens up in, you know, in Syria and showing normal life. So often these start when that they're already the on the case. boat. wasn't the right. case in the first script. So tell me a bit about that then, because I think that was, for <laughs> me, that's what we don't see so much. We just yeah. see, see, you know, refugees on the beach, the trauma. We never see where they come from. Yeah. I mean, it was there, but it was a more slimmed-down version. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the whole first act. It was a pre-title. It was like, you know, a scene. And um, I was very passionate about fleshing that out and making the first act all of 
Damascus. Um, and it was something I really held on to because I find that some, nowadays people are so intent on propelling the narrative, they don't ever sit with character and they don't ever get to know their characters. And it, whether you're into sports movies or not and whether you care if she wins her race at the end or not, the only reason you desperately want her to is because you lived with her mm. in Damascus when she was that girl with a dream looking at Michael Phelps on a laptop. So it's, to me, it's, it's, it's the essential part of storytelling that nowadays um, it feels films rush through yeah. and feel like everything has to propel plot, yeah. whereas actually that time with character is so important and valuable. Absolutely. Now this is, I think it's more than one genre, so tell me a bit more about what you want to do fundamentally to where it kind of slots into different ways of like telling stories. Yeah, so this probably comes down to me never wanting to make the movie I've seen before. Yeah. But one of the things that really excited me was the sports movie mixed with this coming of age and this larger narrative of the refugee crisis and what that means and balancing all those elements. That, that was very exciting because um, I've never really seen it in that context before. And um, yeah, I, I guess it comes down to that putting yourself outside the comfort zone mm. and going for something that you don't quite know how it's going to work. Well, I was lucky enough to be with you on set one day, and I saw you blocking out with the trainer what you wanted to do for the montage. Was there any kind of sports films that you had in the back of your mind that you wanted to kind of hit to make sure it had that kind of, I don't know, underdog, uplifting kind of feel that we know so well from those films? Well, look, I love Rocky like everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the essential one um, in my mind. You know, and, you know, I, my, my taste is very broad in terms of films. So... There wasn't uh, one specific one, but I suppose Rocky is a film that's like deeply ingrained in my DNA. Yeah. <laughs> and it, um, there was something special about, you know, having this young Arab woman in this role, um, living that, yeah. um, that was inspiring. And ultimately, I wanted to make the film that the 16-year-old version of myself really wished that I'd seen, like yeah. the film for them. Um, that, that I hadn't seen when I was 16, yeah. uh, you know, because I never saw a version of myself on screen at that age. And I felt that would be so powerful. Mm. And how is it working with two sisters, one of which who uh, never thought about acting before, and then she's, you know, she's such a revelation in this. Can you tell me a bit more about how that kind of worked and your role as a director, also nurturing someone raw talent, but also someone who's quite established as well? Yeah, as a director, you find a specific approach for each individual actor, depending on who they are. So it's no different. I mean, I've worked with a lot of first-timers in My Brother the Devil as mm -hmm. well, um, and in the one I'm shooting at the moment. And it's it's I like that relationship because people are quite pure, and they come to it. It's all about the trust that you build with them and making it comfortable for them so that they don't feel self-conscious, ultimately. Um, and... The first thing I always say to a first-time actor is there's no acting required in this film. I don't want to see acting. I just want you to live in this mm. and feel it for real. Yeah. And it's, that's what Natalie did so beautifully. Yeah, and sometimes it's interesting because it's very clear that having that sissy relationship really works when sometimes it might not work. Sometimes people are related might not have a good chemistry together. It seemed to me that they, if anything, it kind of the kind of story brought out that even more and to be able to rely on each other and lean on each other. So did the shoot. I mean it was a rigorous um physical mm. shoot. We it's essentially a road movie. We were constantly on the move, only in locations for one day at a time. It was COVID, we were all in a bubble. Um, you know, they were intensely together. Um and it's having to 
work in really hot conditions in the sea, seasick, dehydrated, in the heat, being bitten by insects. I mean, it wasn't a comfortable shoot that they were on. No, no. (laughs) And and I think that also brought them together, that they felt they were in the trenches together or something. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, you know, how is that when you're dealing with biography adaptation as well but dealing with people with two sisters who are around and also like what you're able to show and what you can't show how is that kind of I suppose that responsibility that you feel as a filmmaker to try and tell a story that's truthful has the entertainment value but also something that you know the people who it's about can look and feel quite proud of yeah, that was important to me that I represented them correctly and I had a lot of conversations with Yusra and Sara throughout and with their parents and with Sven. I mean, I had them all on WhatsApp and we were constantly talking. Um, as you know, Sven has a cameo in the film yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Yusra doubles for herself in the film and, you know, they came to set when we shot in Berlin when they could come to set. Um, so they were involved But I always told them that this was also not just about their story, it was about millions of other people's Mm. stories. And there was that side of me wanting the audience to be intensely on the journey and on the inside of the journey, experiencing it with them, Um, all the turns and twists and turns they take. But at the same time, popping back to tell that larger story, because as inspirational as Yusra and Sara are, they are the 1%, and I wanted to honour the 99% as well. Yeah. And so there are times where, you know, you need to step back and do that wide shot and give context to what you're seeing within the scene. Absolutely. Was there any things, because this is obviously quite a lot bigger than My Brother the Devil, quite, that was quite intimate. You're having to deal with loads of location, do a sea scene. Like, how is that to cha- challenging for you as a director to kind of do this hot brand new thing that you might not have approached for in the cinematography and blocking all these things? I mean, I can't imagine how <laughs> difficult it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I loved it. I mean, it's, it's you know... Yeah, I I discovered in doing Babylon, because I had to recreate the London riots for the big finale of Babylon, um, how much I loved that kind of thing and being in the flow with all these things happening, you know, um, numerous cameras. I think in Babylon I had like 12 cameras or something on that at once going on. Um, And so this, in a way, we only had two cameras, so it it felt okay. And like any film, there's things you need to learn specifically for that film. But it's not rocket science. You learn it and you work out, you know, underwater filming and working in water tanks and what the complications are, what the things that are easy are, how to achieve what you want to achieve. It's part of the the prep and the research and the, uh, you know, to do it. But ultimately, it's the human emotional thing that is the same. Absolutely. You know. And it all adds to your wheelhouse. I think about Gina prince Byford, who's gone from Love and Basketball to direct The Woman King, which yeah. is this massive kind of epic, but also doesn't lose character. Have you got kind of ambitions for that, to do something quite big scale at this point? Are you look, what's, what's, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, well, I'm shooting a small indie film at the moment, so the complete <laughs> opposite to swimmers. But never say never. I mean, my taste is very broad, and, uh, yeah, of course, one of the joys of swimmers was finally being able to have the budget to realise my ambitions. As a director, certainly working within indie film, it feels like every day on set is the day your dreams die because you go into it with all these incredible ideas and images in your head, and then... Three hours later, you realise none of them are achievable <laughs> with, within the time and money you've got. Um, so what was lovely with Sim is to finally be able to flex my muscle and realise some of those dreams. So I like working in that way. I like having the ability to, 
to realize what's in my head yeah. uh, fully. But then there's also the adrenaline of getting down and dirty on this film I'm shooting now. Last um, day before yesterday, I was holding a light while I was directing. So it's just a, a different experience and both are beautiful. That's so I'd like a world where I could do both. Well, I hope so. And hopefully we don't have to wait eight years. No, 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 no. <laughs> Sally, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you. My father was born a long time ago. Morning, everyone. Morning, he lived in a world that seemed like it would go on forever. The times got hard. Elmer! And he was a child like any other, prone to scraped up knees and flights of fancy. Why is everything so hard? This is where I can help. Turn around, <laughs> look at what, what you see, see in her face. The, the mirror, mirror of, of your, your dreams. dreams. Make believe I'm everywhere. Hidden in the lines. Written on the pages is it's a two a never ending dragon. <laughs> I wonder um, who wrote the script for this I've week's never episode seen never of Beta Story, Black. So I literally only know that song from Stranger Things. <laughs> But there's a link. Don't worry about it, guys. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there is a link. Uh, this is My Father's Dragon. Uh, struggling to cope after a move to the city with his mother, Elmer runs away in search of Wild Island and a young dragon who waits to be rescued. Elmer's adventures introduce him to ferocious beasts, a mysterious island, and the friendship of a lifetime. From animation studio Cartoon Saloon, behind The Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, and Wolf Walkers, and director Nora Twomey, the film takes inspiration from a children's book by Ruth Stiles Garnett. It features the voices of Jacob Tremblay, Gaten Matarazzo, you see, there was the link, Whoopi Goldberg, <laughs> Ian McShane, Goldshift Ferrani, Diane Weist, Rita Marino, Chris O'Dowd, Judy Greer, Alan Cumming, like a bunch of other people. There's a lot of famous voices in this, but it's Cartoon mm-hmm. Saloon. Why wouldn't you be in a Cartoon Saloon film? <laughs> <laughs> so this is, yes, My Father's Dragon. I mean, I think let's start with our feelings about Cartoon Saloon because, um, I mean, they've had a pretty great track record. <laughs> are, are we fans of Mon? Are you a big fan of Cartoon Saloon? I am, I am, and yet I should be a bigger fan, only because really the only cartoon saloon film that I've seen is Wolfwalkers. I've not seen The Breadwinner or Song of the Sea. I know that is a major failing on my part, and I should rectify that immediately, because Wolfwalkers was so freaking good. And for me, it was my pick for best animated feature, whatever year. I think it was even last year, because I think I, think I ended up losing to Soul, which was which had some good moments, but was nowhere near for me the quality level of Wolfwalkers. It was spectacular. The animation, the storytelling, the acting, all of it. Um, and I you know, obviously heard about the Bedouin and Song of the Sea. I just haven't gotten around to it, but the quality um, just from word of mouth about what you hear from Cartoon Saloon is always very, very high. And on the basis of Wolfwalkers, they combined that really beautifully animated art with very mature storytelling in a way that I really like. Yeah, I think for like me, the really nice thing about Cartoon Saloon is a lot of their stories feel grounded and quite classic, like children's storytelling. Like this to me felt 
kind of like a little like Rudyard Kipling, but if you took all the racism and colonialism out <laughs> and mm. just had the nice animals, you kept the nice animals. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it has that sort of like metaphorical, folkloric, mm-hmm. Aesop's fables kind of vibe to it. And Hannah, I mean, let's talk about Boris the dragon and his friendship with Elma. I mean, that's really the center of the story. He's so cute. He's so cute. Finally, a Boris we can all get behind. Took us long enough. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, it kind of has that kind of uh, where the world things are, but less, like, stressful. Do you know what I mean? Less, like, adult, I suppose. Do you know what I mean? Because I will say I do think it's this one is a little... It's quite lightweight. Do you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. I think... You know, it does get into like, I, I do think it starts off and get into poverty. And actually I found the most, um, I found the most moving parts of it was the earlier bits with the mother whose voice work by Goshifte Farahani, Iranian queen. I love her. She's amazing. <laughs> she's so um, cool. And she's beautiful. And, it, and I thought she really delivered a really good vocal voice performance. Like you really got it. There's this a really kind of, sorry, I'm not talking about Boris because I got the scene because I'm like, this is what I care about. So I'm going to do the classic politician thing where it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to get what I want to talk about first and then I'll get into it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it is very cute. And I, I think Jacob Tremblay, one of the things that struck me about Jacob Tremblay is that he's so good at sounding like he's crying. He's got one of those voices where it's like, oh, there's so much emotion hanging in there. Like, every, everything I've seen him in, I think about, what was the one? one was it, is it called Wonder? The one where he yeah. plays a disfigured yeah. boy. Yes. Yeah. And obviously, like, room and stuff. There's this, like, real, like, I don't know what it is. It's, like, loaded quality to the way that he delivers things when he's kind of in stressful situations. Like, oh, my God. He's, like, he makes me want to cry. Like, my maternal instincts jump out <laughs> whenever I <laughs> like, hear Like, just supreme speak. child actor. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Even though but he's I, kind of, I don't know how old he is now. He's sort of a teenager now, but yeah, child actor. Yeah. No, he is. Have you seen the recent pictures of him? It's like, oh, he's great. I know. <laughs> it's like, oh my how God, old are we like now? He's, like, a teenager now. I, I know, feel very old. <laughs> but, but, yeah, no, they're a good little, good little relationship and... You know, I think that definitely with this type of film, it's not this kind of treading on old territory. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not, uh, it's not reinventing the wheel. But I think definitely when you've got, I don't know, you've got great voice acting and kind of this funny as well, and you know, this he's also like Boris is like super annoying. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like I was very much on like Elmer's side of things. Like God's sake, <laughs> stop going through his backpack it's his private things leave his backpack alone but yeah um i thought it was a nice little camaraderie uh for those for uh kind of a lead thing and you know as well expanding it out with the other characters in it too i was very team boris because he was very well-meaning as a dragon he just didn't know <laughs> he's just trying to learn the social rules and i love him and he was so cute i mean i want i wonder if you could talk a bit about i mean what Hannah mentioned is the relationship with the mom, which I agree. I think it's just beautifully done with the mom. Like a story about a mom that is trying to maintain like a veil of innocence around her son about what's happening, the fact that they can't really afford to to maintain this shop that is like their collective dream. Um, and that bit's beautifully done. And then it kind of transitions to this, I guess, second story, which is about Elmer's adventures on Wild Island, where he meets a lot of different animals voiced by different famous people. I mean, Amon, what did you think of, like, that second half of the movie? I really loved it. Um, 
for me, the second half, as solid as a lot of the stuff in the first half is, the second half, it kicks up a bit in terms of animation, meeting all these animals, which are very distinctively drawn, taking place on this very colorful world of Wild, of wild Island. Uh, so just on that level, it's great. Um, and just learning about sort of what the crisis is there and how people are, are trying to manage it. Like Ian McShane's character, I think his name is Sewa, um, who, again, and Ian McShane, the, the cast for this thing is just ridiculous. Um, and <laughs> McShane was great to sort of bring in diff- varying degrees of anger and also worry and also sort of care and empathy and really wanted to try and figure this out at various points in the film. Um, so, yeah, I I enjoyed that side of it and I enjoyed sort of, you know, what the ultimate solution was and how they progressed towards that. I thought that was very, very well handled. And the whole thing, really, I think the word I can use to describe this type of film was just very sweet. Um, and that really co- comes through, especially in the final sort of third of the film, uh, which the visuals, again, are just, I mean, all the way through, they're very, very good, especially when we move to Wild Island. But the final third, when the big storytelling uh, elements come, fantastically animated. Uh, with the dragon especially, I'm sure Chris, you can talk more to that, but I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I loved, um, it's a very simple thing, but I loved how the the like color palette of the island was pinks and blues and very and soft orange. and very, and orange and really beautiful. And then Boris, He's kind of yellow and turquoise striped, so he really mm-hmm. stands out, and it's such a shim- like a really simple choice. But it it's like that shorthand for this dragon is a stranger to this island because he comes mm-hmm. in; he's not native to the island. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he I think that's out. such a yeah. Um, my favorite, I think one of my favorite voice performances was Judy Greer as the whale. <laughs> I knew it. I knew you were gonna. This is such a clue. Ah, Judy Greer. I mean, Judy her Greer squad cast. Her squad cast name is number one orca fan. So, which it's not even about this movie. Oh yeah, it's not even about this movie. Big, big whale energy today for you. Whale energy. energy. <laughs> uh, Hannah, what was your favorite? I mean, you you mentioned. Uh, I but... yeah but I actually what I think what I like about uh, I like it when you have uh voice actors and you can know who they are do you know what I mean they've got a distinctive accents I kind of don't like it when people put on like you know when Tom Holland puts on an American accent mm-hmm. to be yeah. thing it's like or Benedict Cumberbatch doing it for the Grinch I, you know, I, I get that's like part of like voice acting, you do different voices. But I think in this one, I like the fact like you mentioned Ian McShane, you hear mm-hmm. that, you know, it's Ian McShane, Chris O'Dowd, you know, it's Chris O'Dowd. And then I loved it because Alan Cumming playing the crocodile uh, was great. Cornelius the crocodile, because it was like, oh, is he? He's a nice one. He's like, oh, no, he's going to eat you up. And it's like, oh, <laughs> and the little animation with the little baby crocodiles is really sweet as well. So I think, yeah, I do love it when. You could. There's a distinct. You can distinctly hear the person, the actor, uh, and that kind of, kind of. I don't know. It just. I. I spe- it not legitimizes, but it. It just. It, it feels more comfortable. You feel like, oh, I know these people, and therefore it's kind of like I feel mm. them coming out more in their voice performances. Yeah. That is so interesting. Like, I think for me, just overall, I actually prefer it when I don't recognize the voice actor in the moment and then when i see the credits it's like oh that was him oh that was her 
alternatively, I do like it when I do recognize the voice actor, but I forget that it's her in the moment because I'm with the character and I sort of forget that it's Whoopi Goldberg or Ian McShane or whoever it is in the moment. I felt a little bit of that with this film, which I think is a testament to the voice acting. But I, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't like it when I can tell that it's so-and-so and in my mind I'm thinking, okay, this is definitely Chris Evans or Ian McShane or whoever I'm hearing as I'm watching it. Chris that Evans, Ian McShane, that's like an interesting... No, no, like, I'm, is not, it Chris I'm, or I'm, is it Ian? I'm, 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 <laughs> I only mentioned Chris Evans because when uh, Lightyear came out, there were a couple of times where the spell was broken for me because I was thinking in the moment, okay, that's definitely Chris Evans. That's definitely Captain America talking. I wasn't sort of fully engaged in the film to the point where I could turn that off. I feel like that was maybe partially because of the voice acting or direction or something. I don't know. But I, I, I felt less of that in this movie, which again, I think is a testament to good voice acting. Yeah. And good casting. Cause I, I think like there's a really great mix of like, I don't know, like different types of voices. Cause sometimes you watch animated movies and I, it's kind of bouncing off what you said, Hannah, that everyone puts on like a flat American accent yeah. and it's like, this could be anyone. So I like that everyone's spoken there their like natural accent and it became part of the character and it like didn't matter that like that one monkey was Irish. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> um, Did you, and I also it was just... funny that Jamie, uh, was it, what's his name? Um, who's the guy who's, he's in the, what I think he's in, he's in Watchmen, John Early. Oh, Jackie L. Haley. Jackie L. Haley. Who's like, who's like the rock, rock Jack, Jack, Jackie yeah. L. Haley. Yeah, yeah he's Rorschach in Watchmen. And in this, he's yeah. got this like super high-pitched voice of like, <laughs> Jackie? <laughs> that was funny. He's kind of like the Mort of this movie. You know Mort from Madagascar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mort. I love you, King Julian! <laughs> you know Mort? <laughs> yeah. He, he's giving off Mort vibes. Um, <laughs> so I think I think we've kind of covered everything, unless anyone think, anyone has anything else. Yes, it's time to say. for the predictable I'm online because the Dana Brothers score for this film is beautiful. I absolutely loved it, and it carries a lot of uh, the film's emotional moments in a really big way too. The final third I was mentioning, when everything is going down visually, it's just the visuals and the score, and the score is all you need when it's as good as it is in this movie. So I love that too. Perfect. What a great way to to sign off. I mean, for <laughs> our judgment for today. So, My Father's Dragon is going straight to Netflix on Netflix now. So, it or is a stream. if you own Manchester animation at the Manchester Animation Festival, they're show, doing oh. a screening of it at home. So, if you're in Manchester, then <laughs> might you might be able to see it because there's loads of animation going on there, and I'm on the jury there for the short films. But uh, yeah, just to let you know, you can see it on the screen. At some point next week. I think it's on a Tuesday, Tuesday night. <laughs> That's awesome. great. Wow. So there is a screen option. I mean, let's keep to, to stream or yes. skip with respect yeah. to people who don't live in Manchester. People <laughs> live in Manchester. No, no, yeah, got yeah, the yeah, option. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so stream or skip, Hannah? Stream. Amon. It's a stream for me too. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens at the next Oscars because Netflix have got some between Pinocchio. The Sea Beast, Turning Red, and this. They've had a lot of, a lot of really good animated features this year. Um, so it'll be interesting mm. to see what happens when it's all said and done. I, my personal pick from that, I haven't seen Pinocchio yet, but Turning Red, um, I freaking love it. It's like my number two or number three favorite film of the year. So, 
Yeah. I'm already team Pinocchio. I haven't seen it yet, but you know. <laughs> I'm, seeing, I'm, see, I'm seeing it on Monday night. I'm so excited at Manchester Animation Festival. <laughs> I'm doing go. very good at plugging this festival. <laughs> it's good. I wish I could go. It sounds amazing. Uh, I'm also stream Gaten Matarazzo stop making me cry in 2022 <laughs> I swear to god <laughs> I've shed so many tears because of that man <laughs> <laughs> but from oh from from Judy Greer whale to orca whales <laughs> to all the whales <laughs> they're very minor part of this movie but still it's Black Panther Wakanda forever his people do not call him general or king. They call him Kukul Khan, the feather serpent god. Killing him will risk eternal war. He's coming for the surface world. Wakanda forever. Liki Talokan. <laughs> which is the talokan honestly um I... i'm martin freeman i'm from oh. the fbi <laughs> is he the fbi or the cia he's a cia isn't he he's a cia <laughs> <laughs> I up, i'm sorry to sell up a little bit queen ramonda shuri mbaku okoye and the dora milaje fight to protect their nation from intervening world powers in the wake of king t'challa's death as the wakandans strive to embrace their next chapter the heroes must band together with the help of war dog Nakia and Everett Ross and forge a new path for the kingdom of Wakanda. This film is directed by Ryan Coogler, who also co-writes it with his other co-writer, Joe Robert Cole. And uh, the film stars Angela Bassett, Letitia Wright, Tenochtitlan, Maya, Winston Duke, Denai Guerrero, Florence Kasumba, Lupita Nyong'o, Martin Freeman, Dominic Thorne, Michaela Cole, Mabel Kadina, and Alex Livernali. We'll have an interview with Tenochtitlan, Maya, uh, coming very soon, uh, later in this episode, in fact. But first, let's talk about Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I think the place to start with this is the Chadwick Boseman of it all. Uh, we lost him in August 2020. How do you feel the film honoured him and paid tribute to him whilst doing everything else it had to do? And Clarice, let's start with you. Oh, I think, like, it was really moving because... I think what's interesting about the film is I saw a lot of the early reactions were saying this is a film about grief and it's it's kind of not I would say most of the story is about the like the clash between um Wakanda and Talokan which I'm I would assume was the story that they were going to go with uh before Chadwick Boseman's death um but I think what's What's just really moving about it is that the film gives all the actors space to grieve on screen and there are very sincere discussions about grief and the different ways that that people grieve grieve. There's like kind of a there's like a multicolored nature to it all because everyone deals with it in a different way. Um and I don't know, I think you just really tell that the actors on screen like are going through it and those emotions feel so real and so raw which is i think especially because it's a you know it's a marvel movie it's a big blockbuster we're not kind of used to that rawness of emotion so i found it like quite startling in some places um 
But yeah, incredibly moving. I don't know, Hannah, what do you I think? I disagree with you. I do think it's actually, I think it is all about grief. I do think it is. I think it's, 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 it's about how, how, I mean, we've, we've said this a lot, but grief obviously is one of the main, uh, is often the fuel for so much within comic book stories. It has been in what we've seen, look at WandaVision, what grief causes her to do, you know, Thor, him going through grief, you know, all these different situations. Like what is about what, how grief motivates you and so I think and I think that's how Namor and I'm calling him Namor from now on I'm no longer calling him Namor because it's Namor but um I find that you know everything was in a response to how today you know with Shuri how does she continue and how does it make her feel and how does that the the anger and all the emotions that grief because obviously grief is emotion but it's also like an umbrella right and then it's all the other things that comes off it and I feel like what it makes clear and you know explicitly and thematically is that both Namor and Shuri have experienced grief in their life caused by certain sometimes outside forces as well whether that grief is coming from you know a wider grief on colonization causing the death of death of people in a world and creates anger or that personal grief of not being able and the shame of not being able to to save someone you know the the guilt the survivor's guilt as well so I definitely think that I don't think it's the only thing about the film but I definitely think it's definitely a through line um Mm -hmm. through which how how we navigate it and how we you know how we survive it and how we continue and go on. And I think that definitely we go on a very kind of rocky road, certainly with Shuri, who's obviously taken a more central role. So, you know, Mm -hmm. how that can positively and negatively affect. And, you know, as we know, we'll go into the spoilers bit in later, but, you know, she, (laughs) my girl goes through it. I was going to just, can I do it just just to, yeah, just to say, I, I do agree. I think you're right. Um, I think my, my point was more, I feel like there's emotional, like a gear shift whenever we're talking about um, the themes that were already in place, like before Chadwick Boseman died, like what the movie was going to be before he died and the stuff that they put in. Like, I think for me... Well, didn't Ryan Coogler say it was all going to be about grief? He said in an interview of Inverse that it was going to be about, um, it was going to be like, obviously Chad uh, T'Challa had been blipped and he'd missed five yeah. years and it's about grieving the time that he lost and what he wasn't able to do. So yeah, just like, it's just like that recentering that. Yeah. Does that make sense? What I'm saying it's more like emotionally, like I feel like there were certain scenes where I could tell like, Oh, something's changed about it. And like the grief felt really raw yeah. as opposed to like, there's the body of the movie, which was like what it was going to be. And it, you are right. It is about grief in different ways. And then I think there are the specific scenes that are about the cast, the cast and the actors yeah. and everyone on board grieving Bozeman. And like those scenes really stood out to me and felt, yeah. And that's where the raw, like the surprising rawness yeah. of it came in. I was like, yeah. Oh shit. Okay. Yeah. I'm not used to seeing this in a Marvel movie. Like this is really, um, it reminded me like, of, you pure. know, in Glee, not to bring Glee up, but like, you know, when Corey Monteith died and then we saw yeah. Rachel Berry, uh, Leah Michelle perform the Adele song. And like, that is pure, real emotion, that whole episode. That's and that's, what I, yeah, that's yeah. exactly what, that's a great analogy. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you can tell when something is like not being acted as fantastic as these yeah. actors are. Um, I thought that handled the Chadwick of it all perfectly. 
um, from the first scene, which goes zero to 100 in a big way. We'll talk about that in the spoiler section to the final five minutes, which for me, the last scene in this movie and the mid credit scene, perfection is an understatement. I think it's phenomenal, sublime, no perfect storytelling. I absolutely love it. And in terms of the ordering Chadwick of it all, it really comes through in a very powerful way. The first time I saw, every time I think about the mid credit scene, it makes me emotional, but the first time I saw it, it really hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, because especially given what the conversation had been leading up to this movie about the fact that we are sort of not only losing Chadwick, but losing T'Challa and what that means for the MCU, where they end up with it is sublime. I freaking love that. Um, and I, I kind of disagree slightly with that. I, I'm okay. a bit more cynical, but we'll go into it in the spoiler set, but I'm a little bit more cynical about that ending. As much as I thought it was okay. beautiful, I'm a bit cynical about it. Okay. That's interesting. Um, now, this is going to be an interesting discussion because in the build-up to this episode, um, we you know, we have our Play to Black WhatsApp group, and both Hannah and Clarice, you said that you are on Team Telecom. Uh, so... Woo! You keep Telecom! <laughs> So somehow, Say no you're, more, some, money more. <laughs> somehow you're on the side of the dude. He wants to wreck the surface world and kill everybody. But okay, uh, the floor is yours. Justify your decision to be on the wrong team here. So that's what you are. <laughs> I think it's it's not about again the beauty of uh, of Ryan Coogler's Coogler's storytelling is that the antagonist is never the real villain. This is true. And um, I found uh, the motivations behind Namor and the Talakanians. What would you say? Tala- People at Talakan? Because Talakan's kind of, a, this is the so, yeah. slightly confused me. Talakan is a city, right? It's not. Yeah. And the Talakan city is a nation. I, I think that even though Talakan is the word that is used to describe this underwater kingdom in this movie. I don't think that means that we're never going to hear the word Atlantis in the MCU. Because when I spoke to Kevin Feige about this, when I wrote the Empire feature, he said that for the purposes of this movie, Atlantis is Talakan. The way he said that, the way he phrased that, to me means that Atlantis is going to pop up as a word, as a thing at some point in the MCU. It's interesting because um, we'll get into my interview with though. we'll get into my interview with Tanach because we were talking about like how it, we, we, they imbued it. Like originally it was like the Greek elements of it and now it's Greek mythology influenced it and now very much Mesoamerican uh, indigenous uh, culture very much influenced what it is today, what it is now. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, beside the point, I well, because Talokan, I don't know if this is helpful. Talokan in is is a mythic is yeah. paradise. So yeah, it, Atlantis and Talokan are are. I, I think it's a good not idea. Interchangeable not, in my mind. Yeah, I, I think it's good that they change it because you can't have two. You can't have Ackerman and Namor both being from a city of Atlantis and then Atlanteans and all this type of stuff. Anyway, mm. I think what I really liked about it was the fact that. You know, he 
he's here to do business and like you know he might be a bit cutthroat about it and stuff but i understand the motivations on it and i i thought the way i mean one he is sexy as fuck every time he rose up out of the water i was fanning myself love his little costume kind of sad they didn't do the speedos but we still get little tidy little swim shorts which are great um Mm -hmm. yeah i just i understand i get it and I like the confidence that he has. I like the arrogance. He's kind of like, in a way, a bit like a low-key character. You know what I mean? I like the fact that he's 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 not clear-cut hero, right? He's like an... And I think that's so far more interesting than like, you know... That's why Eric Killmonger, people love Eric Killmonger. Because he's like, there's, you know, he... You can understand exactly... You can understand exactly what he um his motivations on why and yeah he does bad things you're kind of like oh maybe don't go too far but that's what the beauty of Nimor as a character is he's kind of like he cares so much about his people and in a way you're kind of like but he's right like these you know the whole point of this motivation this film is that they're trying you know western forces outside are trying to get their hands on vibranium you know not for peacekeeping but to create weapons to fight you know it's great that the wakandas have never actually allowed that to come out and you know as much you might criticize them for being a royal family they've never been imperialist in the way that they're working and i think you know the land land dwellers have throw stuff into the ocean, ruin it. You know, I don't. I think they're fair enough to try and like stop them trying to interfere with their lands and try and you know destroy their kingdom. And I, I, I think that he's got a point now. And I think that you know, I think that's allowed, Clarice. I think he's even more like empathetic than Killmonger because I remember in Black yes. Panther they showed like him. Like, there was, like, a girlfriend that he killed. Like, he did stuff that was, like, morally just objectively wrong. Like, he was killing yeah. people for no reason. And you go, okay, well, I can kind of see how he is the villain in this, even though he made some points. <laughs> I feel like in this one, what's really interesting is that it feels more like... It's it's too... It's like a purely political thing. It's two nations who have their own interests trying to figure out like the way forward that can be peaceful and if peace cannot be sought well then that's when war happens um so i think namor is that namor i mean what i thought was really kind of i thought was like maybe a power play i love the fact when he first gets introduced himself he calls himself you know he says oh you know people call me the the might the humans call me namor which means like uh it's like of the devil or something or without love or something like that no more it's like with no love the child with no no love because that's like the whole thing is background he's got obviously he's like talican name and so he was like namor and then after that immediately after all the wakandas are like namor and it's like where'd you get namor from he didn't say (laughs) namor I feel like this is like a microaggression power play by everyone else calling him Namor when his actual name is Namor. This is oh, a very... is this like the the Moon Knight thing again with um what's his face? I've forgotten his name now. Um, you, the bird you mean... guy. Khonshu. Yeah, but that's Honshu. Yeah, but that's Honshu because and yeah. Well, that's because and interestingly, the only guy who said his name actually correct was the guy who played Salim, who was one of the other avatars for the gods and yeah. he is actually Glaswegian, Arabic Glaswegian and his name's Halid, so of course he's not going to say Khonshu when it's the same Khonshu. Yeah, yeah. anyone who says... Namor is not 
where does an amour come from? I think it might be, well, well, it's like mon amour. Amour? Amour? Namour. And oh, it's like yeah. without love. Because he's yeah. called a child without love. That's where he gets his human yeah. name from. Because he's seen as yeah. like a devil. Yeah. With yeah, his like nah, winged feet. I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. Um, I really like how he's written. I really like how his arc dovetails with Shuri's arc in terms of grief, as Hannah mentioned. And I really like his formidable nature. Like, the way I felt about Namor in this film is what I wanted to feel about Gore in Thor Love and Thunder, but only got in little tiny snippets. Here, every time Namor is in action, every time the Talakans are in action, it's a problem. Like, there are times when I watch this film where I'm like, is this character that I really like going to make it out of this? Is this character okay after just being hit the way he just got hit? Like, I don't feel that way in a lot of Marvel films because the action, same as in the word, but it just doesn't have the same sort of impact as this uh, movie does. There's a big fight scene that Okoye has, and we'll get into more detail on the spoilers, but every time I've seen this film, there's an audible reaction like, oh, damn, what is happening? Because this is Okoye and she's being tested like she's never been tested before. And like, what is going to happen? Is she going to be okay? That level of threat is not something I feel from every Marvel film, but I absolutely felt it from this. I think it's also... Yeah, and I think it's... it's, I I, I suppose it's kind of... If you compare that to like Avengers Infinity War... You mm. want the other side to die. You want all of them to get killed. And Nish, you're like, stop fighting. Don't yeah. fight each other. Um, and what's also, they're both, and again, it's like they're both formidable threats. It's like an actual mm-hmm. like battle worthy of a battle where the, you just don't know where it's, which way it's going to land or which way it's going to go. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's, again, what's so brilliant about this and the fact that it's, what I love about this film so much is that it's about an indigenous, like, an indigenous people and an indigenous people. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. it's not about like settlers or colonizers, even though they're in the kind of landscape of it in the background, the periphery. Mm-hmm. I love that it's so focused on that. And it's so, and it feels considering how much we get, how many superhero moves we get. And again, <laughs> sorry to bang on about Black Adam, but it did come out a couple of weeks ago. This reminds you how to do, how to do mm-hmm. culturally specific Mm-hmm. How to make it feel real and make it jump up the pain, make it feel rich. And it feels just like when you get characters that are created by white men and you get the right creators involved who are willing to go that extra mile. And you'll hear about in the interview with Tenoch, like, you know, what the kind of things that they did to try and make mm-hmm. the, you know, Namor and all of his people just embedded and just have this like lineage as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it comes to the costumes, whether it comes to like mm. the music, you know, mm. it, it just everything, the, it just felt so real and visceral. And for, for me, this, this, I, I actually kind of like this better than the first Black Panther. Ooh, yeah, that's this a is the Empire Strikes Back for me. That's interesting. <laughs> I, th- I think the first movie, the first Black Panther movie is better than this one. I don't even want to get into comparisons too much because I feel like this film was always going to be such a different experience. It wasn't going to be going to be able to get to the euphoric celebratory levels of the first one, given everything that's happened in the interim, but just on a pure filmmaking level, the way the first film flows for me, storytelling wise, 
is why I put it ahead of this film. Because even though I still loved a lot of what it was doing in the moment, there were times when I felt like when it felt like to me that there was two different films warring against each other um, watching this movie. And the, the moment that really comes to mind when I think about that is when um, we go to Tyler Khan. It's beautiful. The acting is great. I love some of the storytelling. But it felt like a film which up until that point had been flying along pretty seamlessly grinds to a halt to give you a massive exposition dump that felt like a big exposition dump in the moment as I was watching. And then it has to ramp back up again. The first film doesn't suffer from that flow, sort of, from, from, from that flow awkwardness that I feel like this film does a little bit. And a little bit because it has to, in terms of the Chadwick of it all. And also because, and this is the other thing that I want to get into before we go into spoilers, the... You mentioned that the, you know, and you're right to do so, Hannah, that the real villain in this is the colonizers, is the other nations trying to sort of get to Talakan, trying to get to Wakanda for vibranium. Which brings me to the Martin Freeman of it all. I'm not going to mention the other character here yet, in case people listen to this, haven't seen the film yet. We'll get into it in the spoiler section. But there's a few Martin Freeman scenes in this film. In the first film, it felt like that character, Everett Ross, was really seamlessly wedded into everything else that the storytelling was doing. Here, it feels a little bit like they are working overtime to make sure he's included. And I get why, at least as the, as the film was presently constructed, his scenes are there. But it felt like it wouldn't have taken much to decrease the amount he is in the movie and increase the amount someone like Aneka is in the movie. Because Michaela Cole, by far, is the biggest casualty of everything that this film is trying to juggle. She gets lost in the shuffle a little bit for me. Um, so what did you think about that that geopolitical element to it, which I think they're trying to bring... I, I would not be surprised if they shot more of that, um, but because everything that they're trying to do, they, they, they want to give a little bit of a flavor of it without giving you sort of all of what they probably did, because... Yeah, I didn't mind that, because I felt like it was the... Um, it kind of, like, allowed some, like, light relief because it's quite an intense movie. And in a way, mm-hmm. those scenes from function as a way of like, you know, like in Shakespeare, it's like, let's get the jester on. <laughs> He's like the jester, <laughs> let's right? Let's get the to talking kind of like, white guy Get in. everyone back. Yeah, but it's like, no, but it's like a jester to kind of like, um, kind of, uh, kind of, because uh, it's so intensely fraught and emotional mm. in so many ways that when they kind mm. of got there, it kind of made it was quite clear to me how they established it and what they wanted to do. Because of course, you know, there is an outside threat and they have to kind of touch on that. And I didn't think it was too much. My issue, you bring up like the Michaela Cole of it of it all, but like mm-hmm. what I found frustrating about that, it felt like they introduced this new character when they already had a character who could have done exactly what she need that character that that and Anika was supposed to do, right? Io by Florence Kazumba. She has mm-hmm. been here since the beginning and they basically mm-hmm. sidelined her. That's my issue with it. That's what I really found annoying. I think they didn't... Put Michaela Cole in it. I get why you want a big name and stuff like that. But to be honest, I could have done without the Anika character and actually given Ao far more stuff to do because she's earned the right to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, I was just quite... That was disappointing for me, the way that she was sidelined in favour of a more stunt, stunt casting, you know? Kalisa, is there anything you want to add in this section? Um, I want to shout out uh, 
Autumn Durard Okapo, mm. um, who did the cinematography. She also did the cinematography on Loki. Um, I thought it looked great. Um, yeah, the scenes in Talokan looked fantastic mm. because there is a real sense um, of like the depth and the way that the sunlight like filters mm. through, and they mm-hmm. had the like the little wispy like things going across the camera, which to compare to something like Aquaman. Um, like the underwater scenes there felt very fake to me. Yeah, it looked and underwater. I will say this, which is partially because I think Aquaman, if I remember correctly, was not shot underwater and there was actual underwater filming for this. Yeah. Um, but you really see it and the light is is really great, I think. Um, also Ruth Carter's costumes. Oh my god! Some of the stuff that Angela Bassett was wearing mm. and my jaw dropped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she yeah. looked so good. Oh my god. We haven't we haven't oh. talked about performances too much, but also mm. Amon, I know it's normally your section, but like look with Garanson. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. He was it was so it was just like it was one of those things where even if I didn't know he was doing a score, the minute I heard it I was like, Oh, this is a Ludwig joint. Like he <laughs> the the yeah. way he like it uh, extrapolates vocals and gets that to work that the um you know, Latin, it just so beautiful, mm. so textured, so layered. Even the stuff when, and I love the way, you know, it had the, the themes for Talakan versus Wakanda. It just had this kind of ethereal, there was an ethereal, like, so, sort of kind of like a siren-esque. Like, mm-hmm. there's a part of it about how, you know, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, but one of the ways in which um, the Talakan people are able to kind of, like, go into battles using song and I thought that scene those scenes were amazing because mm. it was so scary it was like mm-hmm. mermaids, yeah the proper mermaids. mermaids yeah mermaids got teeth you know <laughs> um I thought that was so beautifully handled but we haven't even talked about we can talk about in a non-spoiler bit about uh, sorry you should talk about music as well because it's your favorite bit no, can I no. quickly also one name I want to shout out before we get into music also Hannah Beecher who did production, production design, design. Yeah. everybody was just working at like maximum like mm-hmm. just it looked great yeah <laughs> yeah yep no you are bang on about the music uh we'll get into that a little bit more in the spoiler section i think um because there's a couple of new themes but it's so interesting i feel like oh, here's here's what i will say about the music here the music from the first film is very much geared around the T'Challa character. There's not much of that music in this film, but when the music from that first film comes into play, it's earned and you feel it and you know why it's there. And I'll get more into that specifics in the spoiler session, but I feel like that that was great too. But let us get to the performances because you're absolutely right. I think across the board, they're really, really good. Uh, Letitia Wright has to step up to the plate here in a big way. It's a much different Shuri from the Shuri that we were introduced to in the first film uh, for reasons which are necessary and which come through. As you say, she has put through the ringer here, but I think she acquits herself very well. There's at least two moments where I thought to myself, she is really killing the scene, really great acting. Uh, So I love that. I just loved as well, you know, Ryan Coogler... He's made, this is his fourth film. In his prior three films, it's been very much about fathers and their sons. You think about Fruitvale Station, you think about Creed, you think about the first Black Panther. 
fathers and their sons runs through all three of those movies. Here, it's really about mothers and their children. And I feel like he handles that equally well, in part because he got a powerhouse like Angela Bassett uh, to be one of the focal points of your movie. She is absolutely phenomenal in this movie. There's been some awards talk already. I kind of get it. I don't think it's going to come to pass, just me being cynical Oscar-y here, but it, it would be well-deserved that she got a nomination. There's a couple of scenes where she just gives it everything, and it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love that performance. Um, I think the Nike River is really, really good too, really, really strong. I only wish that Okoye arc in this film, to me, feels a little bit unfinished. Um, I, I think that's a casualty of sort of the cut and move forward and having to juggle things around and making sure everyone gets their due time, etc. But her arc to me here feels a little bit unfinished. But when she's given big moments, both action-wise and just acting-wise, she delivers. So those were the three main ones that really stood out to me. And then, of course, you have Tenochtitlan Tameha as Namor, um, who is really, really good and really, really strong and is able to give you different degrees of the spectrum when it comes to the more, not only in terms of his menace, but also he gets a couple of moments where he gets to crack a, a little joke here and there. And when he does get those moments, it comes through and it's really funny and it makes me chuckle. Um, oh, there's one other thing. <laughs> Winston Duke, as in Baku, is fantastic. You talk about levity in this film that is very, very heavy. His reintroduction is perfect. I freaking love it. Um, it's where my squad cast name originates today because where's the Duke is the guy who says, bald head the demon. Um, <laughs> at one point, as he's introduced, which is just fantastic. But I also love his development from the first film to this film, specifically in terms of his wisdom and who he gives it to in the course of this movie. Um, and we'll get into the future of the character in spoilers, but given where I think this film is hinting towards for that character specifically i love what they're doing and i've talked for far too long is there anything else that you guys want to add in terms of performances clarice um i thought dominique thorne as riri williams was great and i really yeah. liked how all the character relationships were very well modulated because shuri in the first movie was very much like kind of comic relief she mm -hmm. was like you know the rebellious sister always like you know making fun of her brother and obviously in this movie she can't really be the comic relief anymore because she has mm -hmm. to take a lot of the emotional weight but there's a really nice way that the characters would change in believable ways depending on who they were with so if shuri is sharing a scene with okoye shuri can be the old shuri a little bit mm -hmm. but if shuri is sharing a scene with riri williams like riri williams is the the kind of like younger mm -hmm. <laughs> like funnier kind of like more rebellious character and i thought that was really beautifully handled both in the script aspect and also the performances that you could have like 
a, a sense of variation without it feeling unnatural. All of those characters makes, made sense that they would act like that around each other, which I think um, often in lots of blockbusters and Marvel and superheroes, like that's the thing that I think we lose out on a little bit is that characters are very like, I am Doctor Strange and I act like this all of the time. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but there's variation in this beauty and this depth and there's... Um, yeah, I thought the performance. I thought everybody was great. It's really hard to like pick a mm-hmm. a highlight. It's time for the second Hanafulant interview of the episode uh, with Tenochtitlan Meha. Um, yeah, uh, we. I mean, as I've mentioned, we get into the kind of changing of the origin story for Namor, um, working with Kevin Feige to make it more culturally specific, and yeah, here it is. Enjoy. Excited, like I'm maybe a little bit obsessed with Namor as a character, so like I'm kind of fighting myself a little bit. No, Carlin Jr. No, I will. <laughs> um, Namor is such an iconic character because he first—he's like the first Marvel Comics like superhero. Like he's such such a storied history, but there's also a big transition of his how he's evolved over the like last eight years of like the comics and coming on screen. So I suppose. What was your first introduction to him as a character and understanding of who he is? Oh, uh, I think at the it was when 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 Ryan and I we decided to make a simple man, a simple human being with the motivation of everybody can share. You know, he's trying to protect his people. He's trying to protect his family, his culture. So uh, he's capable to do whatever he has to do, you know, no matter the cost. So I think that's, is, that was a smart move from Ryan and uh, because the people can identify themselves in this character. And then he has, of course, superpowers and this marvelous background. And of course, it's different, you know, the original one who has the uh, Greek heritage now we have Maya Heritage, which is deep and finest and beautiful. So I think it's it's not just a good move. It's it's uh, it's it goes well with these new times, you know, with the current times. The things are changing. The representation matters, and now we finally have the superpower with strong heritage in Mesoamerican culture, especially Mayan. And I think it's a proud uh, representation uh, with dignity. And I want to be, uh, I want to be, you know, this uh, guy who represent in the best way possible all the the beauty and the greatest of uh, our cultures, our roots, you know, Mesoamerican, indigenous, and African roots in Latin America. I thought it was interesting. Uh, this is, I mean, it's not spoilers, though. It's at the end. It said introducing when your, when your name came up. And you've been, it's not like this is the first film you've ever done. No. You've worked with Kurt. This uh, is like, the latest 7B. Yeah, so film. I was so interested. Like, why are you introducing in this film? Is it because, like, introducing you to MCU? Is that kind of it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I think it's a, yeah, introducing me in this okay. world. So All right, I'll let him off. That's on. it. <laughs> I need to make it, 
it makes me a little bit more interesting. Yeah, you get like the above thing. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like the with and it's like you're introducing. It's like, oh, I'm yeah. special. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think there's obviously been a bit of a change from, because one thing I really identified with uh, with Namor, I, I'm mixed race and like he's mixed. I mean, in the original, he's like half human, half Atlantean. Mm -hmm. Seems like they've kind of, because of what we've got for Aquaman, it's like, let's not, let's have some like distinction between these kind of two similar kind of heroes. Yeah. But for you, like, you know, again, Namor is a character who's also like an outsider within his people. There's something that differentiates him. So like, I suppose for you, was there something, I know you said, you mentioned with conversations with Ryan, but when you first got approached to do this, like even on that, was that stuff, uh, the kind of, the rich heritage, was that originally there in the script? Or was there something you could also kind of have conversations and bring it out and ensure that there was that sort of like, I suppose, cultural specificity? Uh, it was for the beginning. I mean, the, the, it was the first, the main idea mm. to provide him with this heritage. But of course, when I read the script for the first time, I told uh, Ryan, oh, I, I have this, you know, opinion, this point of view. I think we can, you know, change a little bit more this and that, you know, yeah, something that is normal in the process. But as I, I told them, it was a good idea to, to hire these uh, advisors. And they did it. They did it so well. These advisors, they are Mayans. They grew up in Mayan communities, and they have the PhD and all those uh, big uh, t titles. I don't know what you call it, but you know, these yeah, this degrees. Yeah. yeah, the degrees. And uh, they they provide the production with all the knowledge, information, and you know, uh, about the custom, about the the way of life of these people, the music, uh, even. You know, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of things. So the production take it and they made it in the best and most uh, uh, respectful way. So the portrait is fantastic. And uh, uh, actually, there is there are some stones with uh, inscriptions, and those inscription is they are they use Mayan symbols, mm -hmm. real Mayan symbols, from the classic period. And they, they are telling you the story of Talokan and Namor using Mayan, Mayan uh, uh, yeah, the yeah. symbol. So I think they really nailed it, you yeah. know? It's so great. My favorite thing is that, like, in both this film and Black Panther, it's like, the real villain isn't the villain that you think it is. We all, yeah. It's like, it's white. That's the kind exactly. of main thing. And that's what I love about these films. It's like, yes, we all know, guys. We yeah. all know. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I, 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 well, when you got this role, you must have realized looking at also the comic books, like what you'd have to wear. There's a lot of, um, you, you were basically wearing trunks the whole time. And I feel like there's a thing with superhero culture. There's like this like pressure to have this quote-unquote superhero bot like how comfortable were you when you were like preparing knowing that you're going to spend a lot of time swimming in the water but also like just having your body on display where you're quite nice mm -hmm. I mean you're a very fit man but you know it's, it's a difficult thing to be <laughs> everyone else is wearing covered up suits and you're like yeah chest out <laughs> well you have to work out a lot you have to t to keep the diet in your mind and of course train but I think the most important part of uh, all of this was trying to find the connection the human connection, not just with the character, of course, but with uh, Leticia, for example. Mm -hmm. Most of my scenes are with her. So we went really deep in this in this relationship. We explored it. 
And I think that's why the people can't see the connection between these two characters because they represent, I mean, they are an allegory about mm -hmm. their cultures and the clashes of uh, people who doesn't need to be fighting, but, you know, they share the same wound. They share the same uh, historical wound and personal wound. So they, I think they can find more similarities than differences. And yeah, we, we, we go more to, to, to build that part of the character. Of course, you know, work out on everything, but because that's yeah. part of uh, being a superhero. And also, I really like the way uh, he flies that element of it, like sprinting. Yeah. Like, that was really fun. Like, doing that physical kind of stuff, how is it actually shooting it? Because obviously it's like green screen or something like that, but was it like knackering, especially also doing like the swimming scenes, having to actually be able to yeah, yeah. swim properly. <laughs> I had to learn how to, to fly. Yeah. It was not an easy process, of course, because it's not natural for human beings. Now, I, I uh, yeah, we, we, we decide to, to add all these uh, layers in the layers. Layers, layers in the character, and yeah, how we choose the you know the style to swim. We choose. He has to kind of run or walk in the air. You know, yeah. he's not just fly. He has another intention to move, and it's related with Mesoamerican cultures. They used to mark the path with footprint, you know, this yeah. little footprint. So there is something really strong about the feet, about your journey and how you have to walk the journey because we didn't have uh, horses or elephants or nothing like that. So every journey has to be made by your own feet. So that's important. That's, that's a cultural thing that is there, you know, but that's why I, I, I love this this movie because we integrate multiples, yeah. you know, different different layers, different aspects to create this world, the character with a strong cultural heritage. Absolutely. Well, six more films. Thank you very much. I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> and now it's time for our Yes, we're talking spoilers for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and I think the big one here that we have to start off with is the death of Queen Ramonda. Um, still something that is shocking to say out loud, and something which I've gone back and forth on and back and forth on um, the more times I thought about it. I have landed on it needed to happen for the story, and I think it works. Um but it's taken me a while to get there because, you know, Ramonda, not only is she played by Angela Bassett, who, as you mentioned, is just incredible in this movie, but she's a pivotal part of Wakanda. That relationship between her and Shuri is so powerful and so well done. Um, but I think the thing that makes me land on the I'm good with it for storytelling purposes is because I think this MCU film, more so than any other Marvel film, and definitely... It's so interesting to have this come right after Thor, Love and Thunder, because as I mentioned in that movie, death doesn't really matter as much as it should 
in Thor Love and Thunder. In Black Panther Wakanda Forever, death matters on so many levels. And that death, Queen Ramonda, is a big one um, for pushing along certain story elements in terms of you know, the shivia of it all. But also, I like it for the fact that it underlines how formidable Namor is. That attack on Wakanda, it would have been very easy for, yes, Wakandans die uh, in that attack. You see you know, citizens you know, drowning, all the rest of it. But these are people we haven't met whose names we don't know. It doesn't have the same sort of impact as the death of Ramonda does because it affects everybody. And a big part of, I think, what Ryan Cougar was trying to do here in reworking the story the way that he did was because amazing people die in real life and also in the MCU. And he wanted to make a movie about grief and moving through that. And when you take out a person like Ramonda, a lot of characters, especially Shuri, who we can now say is the new Black Panther, uh, has to react to it accordingly. And so for storytelling purposes, I think it works. For you guys, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts because fridging is something which we uh, constantly find ourselves talking about uh, in these films and in action films in general. Do you feel like this strayed too far towards that or are you good with them taking out Queen Ramonda the way they did. Uh, Hannah, let's start with you. No, that's not fridging. That's not fridging. Fridging is when a, a female character is from a male character. So I don't think you could, I don't think you can use that here. Okay. Because it's women. And also it's films, films all about black women anyway. It's like, mm-hmm. as the original one. So I didn't see it that. Um, I just think um, Shuri and Thor should have uh, a support group after having <laughs> all their families taken out yeah i would disagree i think i i don't know why you came for love and thunder like that because i thought you handled the death very well but i will Mm. say marvel as a whole does have an issue with not letting people die (laughs) and it was kind of refreshing that somebody actually died and they're dead now (laughs) and they only exist in the ancestral plane um it's you know angela bassett's got shit to do you know she can't be here forever (laughs) she's angela bassett (laughs) she's got things to do (laughs) well well, i was was cool that let's talk about the other uh big well i said the other there's many big moments but the there's there's another big moment which takes place in the ancestral plane because when shuri goes to the ancestral plane it is not ramonda she meets it is in the jaka a.k.a. Killmonger, a.k.a. Michael B. Jordan, who has had a glow-up since being in the ancestral plane because my man was looking good. Uh, I'm, I'm just putting that out there. He, he was not looking unattractive he uh, was. in the ancestral plane. He, um, I mean, he, just had, he had locks. He looked the same, but with locks, <laughs> longer locks. Wow. Hannah Flint is, 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 is not crushing on Michael B. Jordan, clearly. Um, <laughs> no, I just but, think he's always hot. Like, he was hot in okay. the first one. I don't know what the glow-up is. <laughs> He got longer locks. <laughs> I mean, the man was looking good. He was had the, the locks, the look. He had, he a, he had a glow white. across. <laughs> <laughs> he just main, like, maintained the level of great. glow. Yeah. I um, do love the fact that glow. he still had his, like, tits out. It's, like, the very deep, like, it's very it's deep cardigan that he's wearing in the ancestral cardigans. The good to see that you're paying attention to his face in this right. scene, Hannah. Please. If he's going to um, be a slut and have his tits out, that's where I'm going to look. Uh, <laughs> but let's talk about that because that was a surprise. I did not see that coming and I absolutely loved it. I loved 
his conversation. I love the things that he was bringing up because, again, much like Namor, much like Killmonger in the first movie, he's not entirely wrong with some of the stuff that he's saying, including the fact that before Killmonger's time, would Wakanda have rescued Aviri Williams um, and brought her back to Wakanda? The answer to that question is probably no. Um, he is right in saying that. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff in that conversation that he has a sort of point uh, to as well. And I loved how um, there's a sort of inner dialogue with Shuri and an outer dialogue, really, in terms of which way she's swaying. Is she going to be more like Killmonger? Is she going to be more like her brother? I love where they end up with that. And I love the callbacks to some of T'Challa's dialogue in previous MCU movies in that final fight on the beach in terms of vengeance has consumed us, something that T'Challa says when he's about to take out Claw in Civil War and then reneges, and then also even telling Namor to, to yield, very reminiscent of T'Challa telling M'Baku to yield in the first fight in the first Black Panther. Uh, so what did you think about the Killmonger of it all and how it affected Shuri's arc, Clarice? I thought it was, yeah, it was great because, you know, I I think there is a, a real pressure to bring Killmonger back in some form in the sequel because he was so popular. But I think they found a really natural way to do it where it was, it was character driven. And um, I think it allowed Shuri to be a more complex like figure and, and to have something to tussle with the, the fact that she isn't, quite her brother but she's also not really killmonger either who's her what's their relation cousin Cousin. no cousin cousin um so i i I liked that yeah she was kind of like stuck between these two looming figures in her life and what she comes to at the end is inevitably like her it's her choice and what she wants Mm -hmm. to do and it's sort of a kind of a balance between the two i i guess um but i thought that was great like i i think in terms of cameos good cameo other cameos in the movie not good cameos but that cameo good cameo which which cameo specifically we're talking spoilers now so you can say what who what <laughs> julia louis drivers i don't understand was she's the head of the cia now where did that no, happen she's the I new director of Why shield is she there? she's the new director of shield when did um, that happen why are you just giving me information? I she yeah. was one thing and the other things, and now she's a new thing. And that well, was a lot of information. Well, she's clearly trying to be Nick that... Fury. She's like the new Nick Fury. Yeah. Now. I feel like but that's like her evil, role. But right? well, that's what I mean because I feel like since she keeps popping up in these different ways, more ways to mm-hmm. recruit people. Um, End of Black Widow. Um, obviously, Soren Farker on the Winter Soldier. As we know, we're heading towards the Thunderbolts, which is obviously it seems like she has she had an idea to bring together a special group of individuals and it's called the <laughs> Thunderbolts Initiative and she's heading out. Yeah. yeah, I I felt like it was too much. I feel like they could have saved that for another movie or something because that's the thing I would have cut if you gave me this movie. Yeah. I love Julia Louis-Dreyfus, comedic icon Seinfeld. Like, I love her. She did not need to be Yeah, I agree. Movie. They could have done something more with they could have done something more of Richard Schiff, who was kind of introduced, and I thought there was going to be something mm. more towards to his characters being like the you know the bureaucratic kind of person, and it could have you could have just had her at the end doing it, but creating this like ex-wife situation. Yeah, between them. it was like 
Yeah. A lot of information. And I think when you're also introducing Riri Williams, there was like a chunk of the movie where it was her and Everett Ross and Riri Williams all all being introduced one after the other. And I was like, mm. this is too... It's like I kind of compared it to the problem with Rogue One as well, if you remember. It's like where it was just introducing people nonstop and you're like, just slow down. There's <laughs> too many characters. Stop. <laughs> I think this is the first time I've heard you say a bad word about Rogue One. Are, are you okay? This is this I you... love Rogue One. This is exactly no, why. This is, the thing. <laughs> this is why I compare it to Rogue One, because like Rogue One, the emotions are so on point and it gets there in the end and it's a beautiful mm. movie. Um, but I think as much as I love it, I cannot deny the fact <laughs> that there's a, there's a point, there's like a, a sort of quarter way point in the movie where they're just introducing people and it's mm. relentless. <laughs> <laughs> and this movie has it as well, where it's like, mm. you, there needs to be a better way to introduce 500 characters. Mm. <laughs> there needs to be a better way. Mm. <laughs> Uh, Hannah, you mentioned in the non-spoiler section that you had a small issue with the mid-credit scene. Please elaborate. Oh, the end credits. Well, I I, I understand the tribute, and it was moving to see the introductions of this, you know, T'Challa's son. Um, but I find that this is a way for them to basically make Shuri a one-movie Black Panther. Um, Considering where we are in the kind of situation of multiverses and timelines and with the Kang coming back, time travel and all that, I wouldn't be surprised if we end up having, you know, and the next time we have a Black Panther movie, it's going to be go back to having a male Black Panther, which is fine, but it kind of feels to me like that's the whole point of it. It's like, Mm. I think that was a calculated move so that it could move back to making Black Panther male again. And whether that's um, doing a time jump, um, or if that's something to do with getting, you know, a Black Panther from another timeline, you know what I mean? Uh, I, you know, Quantumania, all this stuff that's going on. I just feel like that's the way it's going to go. So in my head, I'm looking at like the bigger picture of it all so I can enjoy it, but I'm still a bit like, mm, I mm. feel like, you know, it's classic. We can't have women <laughs> in this for too long. That's what I thought. Okay. I do not necessarily think that a one-movie showy Black Panther is in the cards here, because I mentioned in, in the non-spoiler section the way that they're going with M'Baku. Shuri is the Black Panther. I don't think she's interested in ruling. And the dialogue which they set up between Shuri and, and M'Baku, it's almost like, not, scheming is the wrong word, but it feels like they are leading up to M'Baku. The next time we're going to be in Wakanda, is going to be on the throne, and Shuri's going to be the Black Panther, and they're going to be working together. So I feel like Shuri's going to be the Black Panther, if not for another Black Panther solo film, in the wider MCU going forward in Phase 4, with everything going on with Quantumania, with the need for a team when Kang is going to be on the scene wrecking stuff. Shuri's going to be Black Panther in the MCU for the next few years. I'm confident in saying that. We're going to see her in the costume again, as she's going to be in the costume for a while. In terms of the wider MCU stuff, when it comes to the the... Prince T'Challa, son of King T'Challa, which is a line that is so perfect and makes me very emotional every time I think about it. The reason why, for me, it worked so well, there's been such a big conversation about recast T'Challa. He's such a big character in the MCU. Black people have finally, finally got their own hero to look up to and now you're taking him away from us. All that conversation, in addition to everything else that Ryan Cookie was dealing with, the noise for that was very, very loud. 
to end up where they've ended up in terms of the legacy of it all, in terms of Chadwick still playing a part in the legacy of T'Challa continuing, and also that line they have when Nakia is like, he prepared us for his death. That he prepared us for his death line, again, really hits me because we were all unprepared for Chadwick's death. And that line brings it back to the conversation that T'Challa had with his father, T'Chaka, in the ancestral plane in terms of a father who has not prepared his son for his own death, has failed as a father. I'm paraphrasing it, but that is sort of what it is. For Nakia to have that line, therefore, feels like a gift that only a movie can give you in terms of the preparing the movie characters in this franchise that means so much to so many for his death. It gets me emotional just thinking about it, just talking about it. I think it's absolutely, beautifully, stunningly done. And I love the fact that grief is such a big part, especially in terms of Shuri's arc, and she doesn't fully embrace it and do it until those final moments. And when she does, she gets the gift of a nephew, but only when she does, only when she's ready to move on in her grieving process does she get that reward. I think that's beautiful. I love it. I, I, my take on it was my understanding because they're introducing a lot of children. There's a lot of children in the MCU now because there's also Thor's daughter. So I thought it was, I, I think everything you said is really beautiful and like, I, I agree. I thought the scene was very well written. Um, but my idea was also, I mean, it scared me a little because it made me think about mortality. That They're going to wait for those kids to grow up. I mean, they might get different actors, right? But I thought they were like, they're like really long gaming it. <laughs> of like when these actors grow up, when they are adult age, then that will be when there's a new Black Panther who is Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I think. Okay. And also we've got quite yeah. a few films in between hands. It just seems pretty calculated. And then there'll be like a new thought. Yeah, it does. I think. I kind of agree with both of you. I think the actual scene was very beautifully written. I do think it's also very... No, like, yeah, I think it's little, a beautiful scene, but I also pieces. think it, it serves two purposes, right? And also, like, you know, I, I get this whole thing about Jadwick. Of course, he, like, originated the characters, but we've had how many Supermen, we've had how many Batman, we've had how many Spider-Man. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not gonna, like, like, it's not like you're going to retire the jersey. Do you know what I mean? It's not like retiring number 23, Chicago Bulls, right? It's like... Mm-hmm. But hey, if we get... Uh, another woman as Thor, that could be fun. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to be like old people by the time that comes out, so it's, maybe it might not matter. <laughs> then we'll definitely be too old for superhero movies. <laughs> we'll be too old to be complaining about it. <laughs> What's Namor doing next? Where's he going? I want to see him again. <laughs> I want to yeah. see well, I mean, coming back. That's, that's part of the reason why more. I... More orca whales, please. We're, we're definitely <laughs> going to get more Namor. That's part of the reason why I love the end of that, that final battle between Shuri and Namor. Because you've just introduced Talakan. They're going to have a big part to play in the MCU going forward. You don't want to build them up to the degree that you build them up and then slap them down and have sort of, you know, Wakanda sort of be superior and all the rest of it. This way, both nations save face, both leaders safe face and everyone comes out looking powerful at that smart story storytelling as well do you think there will be a solo movie it will be a solo movie 100 percent. yay and he called himself a mutant he called himself a mutant so once yeah. again we are basically drawing back in 
Yeah, he'll definitely get a solo movie, but I wonder if I wonder if they'll introduce the Fantastic Four at the same time because him and Sue Sue Storm have a little flirty flirty. He actually it's actually kind of like pretty problematic. He steals Sue. (laughs) He's like, I want you to be my queen. One point of it. Oh, we'll see. I mean, I would say yes. So (laughs) I know it's like take me. Like, no, me no too. One, Take me. Yeah, would not need convincing on that. Yeah. I don't know who's playing Mr. Fantastic, but... It's like it's in Barbarian. <laughs> it's like that bit in Barbarian. It's like what we were saying the other week, where it's like, would... If I opened a door and it was uh, Bill Skarsgård, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'll stay. Over. Do you want to share my bed? <laughs> I'd be like that. I don't. I mean, I say, I say that if I opened the door and I saw... Vicky Hope and or Gugu and Bartolo, I'd, I'd maybe I'd be with you on that one. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, on that note, it's time to wrap this up and go home, as Shuri says in the first Black Panther, because that is it for episode 86 of the Fate Black podcast. Thanks for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast because it makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Beta Black Pod on Twitter. I am at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter and at Hannah Ines Flint on Instagram. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.